While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Hey, everybody, we're back. Isn't that exciting? Yes. <laughs> uh, this is Mental Health Quest, episode 13. And today we are covering eating disorders, which is a great topic. Um, and I'm very excited to learn some things myself as well as you know get information out there for you guys so uh like i said i'm charlene mcpherson i'm an lcswc and i'm a certified therapeutic game master and my co-host is benjamin tanks i am a registered psychological associate and psychology doctoral candidate Ooh, oh i'm so excited about that yeah once that once i'm changing once that changes to doctor Oh, all that. Oh time. my goodness. Yeah. And then we have a very, very special guest, um, Stephanie Sarmento. Uh, she's a marriage and family therapist, and she's here to help us learn about eating disorders. I'm so excited. I learn through talking and collaborating with both of you. So I'm also excited to share and to learn from both of you. Woohoo! Yes. So I'm going to give a really cool uh, radio show host introduction for our awesome guest, Stephanie. So let me get my voice going. Stephanie is a dual license as marriage family therapist and a professional clinical counselor based in Southern California. She received her master's in clinical psychology at Pepperdine GSEP and proudly serves her alma mater as an adjunct professor. She's worked in applied behavior analysis for five years before discovering her passion for working in trauma and addiction. She is a certified eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapist. We'll cover that in a future episode. And she's a yoga teacher, incorporates her experiences in mind-body practices throughout her therapeutic work. Stephanie finds it especially important to explore the influence of social injustices, intergenerationality, and cultural and socioeconomic complexities of the human experience to address a big picture perspective of her clients' adverse adversities. Wow, that's a tough word. Her current work focuses on an integrative, collaborative approach with that highlights her clients' unique set of gifts to recovery, healing, and self-agency. When she's not connecting with family and friends, she connects back to herself by soaking up the sun, getting lost in books and new cities, and teaching her pup all the silliest tricks. Welcome, Stephanie. Yay! <laughs> I love your I love your talking voice. 
<laughs> for uh, for those of our listeners who don't know, I used to work with Stephanie at a previous uh, clinic, and uh, we like every time she would come in because I was always there before everybody else. Because as we were saying before we started recording, I had a seven a.m. client. Uh, don't recommend that to anybody. But uh, then Stephanie would walk in and just brighten up the day. Oh, hmm. I didn't know that. That makes my heart melt. <laughs> Granted, you always came in like late in the day because you had you were coming from like your other stuff, but and it was like right before I left. But it still was always nice. There was a good way for me to end my working day. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I'm not going to tell you who says that to every guest we have. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> All right. I'll have to listen now. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just totally kidding. It's a surprise. You you might find out or you might not. Um, I say what I have to say for each person because it's yep, all the truth exactly. for each person. Exactly. Um, so in this episode, we like we said, we're going to cover eating disorders. Um, and the first thing we always like to do is kind of get a real world definition of what we're talking about, right? So uh, Stephanie, we're going to ask you to kind of um, describe and define uh, what eating disorders are and, and how you kind of uh, work with them. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with this. Eating disorders are complex. Um, I know that the definition for eating disorders and all of the different types of eating disorders um, can be found online, can be found in the DSM. And for the purposes of this podcast, I will refer to eating disorders as like disordered eating. I think it's easier for clients um, to speak about it in that way, just to remove the stigma behind how we can understand what disordered eating is. Um, and through my experience, with them in my own practice, it's a coping mechanism. It's also um, a symptom to the overarching impact of trauma. And so I'll be looping in a lot of trauma um, into how I make sense of disordered eating. And again, if we talk about trauma, we have to talk about addiction and how it works its way um, into clients' lives when they are experiencing disordered eating. So that's my definition, um, and that's how I typically introduce that when you know a client and I discover that that's something that they're up against. Um, and then for formality, if we get to that space of recognizing that it is one type of disordered eating, then we pull out the book. We pull out all the different things just to give them, you know, a clear definition of what it is they might be experiencing. But yeah, it's such a complex thing. Rarely do we ever say, okay, we're going to work through disordered eating together. It's something that we um, uncover through other stuff when we're working on, on trauma. So yeah, I, I really uh, appreciate that you mentioned it that way, that it's complex and that it's related to something else like a trauma and even addiction, because often and I think we've noticed this, Charlene, for almost every topic that we've discussed is that it's never just one thing. Yeah, uh, there's yeah. always so many factors. And I think it's really important for our listeners and for just people in general to understand that 
because it does get rid of a lot of that stigma. And and I really like the way that you call it disordered eating because actually in my doctoral program, when I took the cl a class on eating disorders, that was actually how the textbook always called it was disordered eating. They didn't call it eating disorders because to say, that, oh, it's a disorder, it kind of sounds negative, but disordered eating is okay, well, we're struggling with this. And, but that implies that it can be, you know, maintained properly and that you can learn how to do it in a healthy way. Um, so I really, really appreciate that you mentioned that complexity and that interconnectedness between trauma and disordered eating. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I was thinking the same thing, Benjamin, that, you know, uh, and, and especially trauma. Trauma always tends to, that's why, like, I, I think trauma work is so important. Um, like being trained in it as a therapist, you know, is because it comes up so often with a lot of our clients, whether it's one time or complex trauma or, you know, whatever it is. So when you um, find out, you know, you're talking to your client and you find out, oh, hey, there's a little hint here, you know, of of something. How do you kind of go through and figure out um, what symptoms they're kind of experiencing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends um, on on the client that I'm working with. You know, I'm I'm reflecting now on the types of, of clients and the types of disordered eating uh, habits I've experienced in the room with them. And for, you know, children or early teens, um, they just, they describe it a lot through um, just not feeling good in how they fit into their clothing. Just, you know, the, the things that um, the younger population um, tends to view how their bodies look, um, whether that's online or whether that's in the room. And then you have the clients who are a little bit older. Um, and by older, I'm more speaking to the women that I've had the privilege to work with who um, are now pregnant, who are going to become mothers. Um, I've, I've been sent a lot of those clients. And what that looks like is it, it goes unnoticed at first, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm getting bigger in my belly. I don't like how my clothes fit. And so in my brain, you know, that translates to, okay, that's, that's typical. That's normal for any mother who's bearing a child. Um, it's normal for them to feel that way. But the more that I start to inquire, um, and ask them about these feelings or these sensations, the more that I realize or that we realize together that they felt that way even before um, you know, they, they became a mother. And so it depends, you know, the types of, of things that come up when, when I'm asking this client what they might be feeling, what they might be thinking, how they might be acting um, towards their relationship with food. And that's not really a conversation that comes up a, a lot in therapy until it does. Yeah, you're right. I'm just thinking about how many times it comes up with me. Not often, unless it's something that they're worried about or, you know, that they identify as something they want to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And so, and so a lot of, uh, you said older 
or you know older meaning like when they get pregnant whatever that is you know 30s whatever they they start noticing this this you know feeling or habit because it's like in your face right like you can't when you're pregnant like you literally (laughs) as being someone who's been pregnant before um you cannot ignore the pregnancy it's it's there and it it shows and it shows quick and it changes your body it changes your mood it changes everything so that definitely makes sense that that's a you know developmental you know uh part of life that kind of brings it up right the other thing that that uh it brought up you know just for me as a pregnant person too was like what do i want to teach my kid Mm-hmm. How do I want to model my eating behavior for my kid mm-hmm. um, so that the cycle, the disordered eating cycle doesn't continue down the line, right? Because we talk, I think you said the intergenerationality of, of, you know, trauma and things like that. Like, I know my family has not eaten right yes. <laughs> our entire oh, our lives. I love that you brought that up. That's such a huge component of it, too right? Like how has our families and then our family's families taught us our relationship with, with food? And I'm, you know, I'm from um, Filipino descent. And that is a whole nother conversation all on its own about how we are ashamed. And it's something that that's not really talked about. So thank you for bringing that up. Because um, with any and I'll even say with any Asian community, the relationship that we have with our bodies and with how we look and with how we consume food, it starts at such an early age. And so when I, when I think about your, your question now, what do I look for to maybe see as an opening? It's what kinds of conversations are we having at home? What was your upbringing like with your mother or your father or your caregiver? And most of the time, I don't want to generalize this to just the Asian population, right? But from um, my own experience and from my experience with and clients who identify as Asian, it's it's very stigmatizing. It's, you know, you move away to college, you come back and very, very simple um, phrases like, oh, you've gained weight. Oh, you look very different. Um, are you sure you should be eating that? Like those things have such an impact on who we are as, as people who are developing and, and trying to understand who we are that then we start to internalize it. And then now all of a sudden we're restricting, we're restricting our food, we're, we're policing ourselves in, in how much we eat or how little we eat. Um, and so it's cultural too, um, whether that means that we identify with a different culture and then we end up trying to create an identity of our own in, in the US, it's so confusing. And that's why I talk about how it's so complex because rarely do we tie in our relationship with food to how we view ourselves and and how we um, be with ourselves in general. So yeah, thank you. I think it's a a good point about the culture because uh, from my experience with working with clients and I I have worked with some clients with disordered eating behaviors from various different cultures, you know, white, Hispanic, Asian, and they all kind of say similar things about how the conversations around food come up as children, which is actually very interesting is because when we're little, you know, especially if we're, let's say we're visiting grandparents, you know, and 
there's I'm pretty sure this stereotype about grandmothers it applies to almost every culture, but mm-hmm. eat, eat, eat. Eat, eat, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then later on, as you grow up, after you've been raised to eat, 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 eat. <laughs> then then grandmas, you know, will use some kind of modified term or word for quote unquote fat. Like, oh, you're a little chubby or, you know, whatever the word is in whatever language. It's really interesting that what you're basically being told is good is no longer good. But you've been Mm -hmm. doing that your whole childhood. That's how you're trained to eat, right? Like you learn everything from your family. And that's what, you know, I think too, like, or at least with my family, I've thought about this. This is something, you know, again, as a therapist, we think of weird things, but um, Absolutely. <laughs> when it comes to disordered eating, yeah, eating. Um, so I think too, like food was so scarce, you know, for a lot of our, um, you know, grandparents and parent, even parents. Uh, I know uh, my mom's family grew up poor, so they didn't know where the next meal was going to come. So when you had food, you had to eat the whole plate, you know, because you didn't know whether you were going to get another one. Right. But now food's so available and there's so much of it and the portions are huge and things like that. You still have that mentality of finish the plate, the clean plate club, right? Like you have to finish everything that's on that plate. Um, And trying to snap out of that when you know there's going to be food, you know what I mean? Um, is really, really hard to snap out of. Yeah. And even with that, there's a lot of shaming because, you know, because then your parents are like, because if you don't finish your plate, then the, there's kind of like guilting also like, oh, well, you know, there's children starving in Africa who don't have yeah. this food. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it's, uh, and, and unfortunately it is a, a very sad but true fact that even in America, there are, um, you know, food insecure families that, don't know where their meals are kind of come from and and so you know the kind of shame goes in multiple directions and it seeps into you and because it's in multiple directions you never know which which way to to go yeah yeah i'm i i love to use myself as a point of reference um in the therapy room Mm -hmm. when um you know we're talking about certain things just just as a, a tool to destigmatize this stuff. And as you both were talking, I was thinking about something in my own life, right? Um, about just the shame and the guilt of not finishing a plate um, because of the scarcity, right? And also because it's it's rude in certain cultures. And I remember growing up and I my, she's still my best friend to this day. And I would go over to her house and her mom would make food. And I remember before going there, growing up, like I have to make sure that I don't eat so that yeah. that yeah. I'm hungry and so that I don't deny the food that's being offered to me. And the food was just ongoing, right? And so yeah. So for somebody as, as a kid or even now, if if I didn't know how to set boundaries, right? Oh, no, thank you. You know, I'm good. I would just eat it. And so the impact of that moving forward, right, like how how do you teach somebody that it's okay to say no, um, you know, when you're being offered food? And then how do you teach somebody to recognize I'm eating more than my body needs because I was raised um, or I was put in, you know, different conversations or environments that taught me that whatever is on my plate, I had to finish. 
and that might mean that the plate was full. Um, mm-hmm. So I was thinking about that, like, wow, we there's all of these different subtle ways that we're we're taught to manage food that we might not even recognize without having mm-hmm. conversations like this. Oh goodness, yeah. Now I'm still dealing with that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I guess um, uh, the other the other question is, could you go over, you know, not necessarily like DSM, you know, symptoms, but like you had mentioned binging and purging and, and things like that. I think people get those kind of, you know, mixed up a lot, restricting, mm-hmm. like you used a lot of those words. So what do those specifically mean? What do they look like? you know, um, how do you kind of identify them, that type of thing? Yeah. Binging. Um, yes, I, I won't go into DSM language just so that yeah. it can be a little mm-hmm. bit more relatable, but binging has a lot to do with eating a lot of different types of, whether it's the same type of food, different types of food, you just continue to eat until you can't any longer. That's a subset on its own. Binging and purging is you eat a lot in order to purge or throw up, um, whether that's on purpose or whether that or whether it's intentional. Um, there's also purging on its own, where somebody doesn't binge, right? They just eat normally and then they um, engage in the act of of throwing up afterwards. So there's different subsets. I I typically approach disordered eating as a spectrum now because it just looks so different. Um, across different ages, populations, cultures, that it it really depends. Um, So those are like the three. I can split them up into different things. And I think that the most important is after I offer that, asking the client how they would take that information and, and relate it back to their own experience, right? They might call it something different, and then we can talk about it in that way. Um, But I like to, to split it up in in different um, categories to give them something to latch onto. But a lot of the healing comes from how they make sense of, of those words at the end of the day. Yeah. So from my experience working with disordered eating, a lot of clients have mentioned to me that they engage in these behaviors because like you said earlier, out of some kind of idea of the way that they feel about themselves or the way that they look. And so they get these kind of ideas that, okay, well, if I do this, then I'll feel better about myself Um, or that I will look better. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how kind of body image and self-perception plays into disordered eating behaviors in your experience? Yeah. I will go into it with this lens. If I were to ask you both, right, how does it feel when you're faced with disgust? Or how does it feel when thoughts of imperfection come into your mind? How does it feel to experience shame or guilt or comparison Ooh, right? Like my chest right away, like it just doesn't feel good. And so now what starts to come up is, well, I start to feel anxious. 
I start to feel really down and I start to feel really low. And now what does anxiousness or feeling down tell me about myself, right? So it, it really has nothing to do. I mean, it does, but it's so far from disordered eating now. Now it's what has shame told me about myself and where do those voices come from? Um, or this feeling of anxiety now, what is it saying about who I am as a person? Um, you're incapable, you're incompetent, um, you're not worthy, you're undeserving. And all of that stuff then without even thinking about it is now unconsciously being paired to this thing that's tangible, this thing that we now all of a sudden have control over is the food aspect. Um, and I don't think that that's something that is is linked together right away. And that's why I say like, eating disorders, it's just a symptom or a coping mechanism to this trauma thing that um, we all experience. Trauma being something as simple as, ew, what are you wearing? To trauma being, I'm experiencing a caregiver um, purge or I'm experiencing a caregiver restrict. I'm watching this as I'm growing up. It's such a range, it's such a spectrum. And so, it depends on, my, I feel like my answers are all like, it depends, um, but it's, no, it's so true. It always is. Yeah, it's so true <laughs> um, with how my experience of shame and guilt and, and what I tell myself when I'm experiencing that versus what you both tell yourselves when you experience shame and guilt and how that becomes internalized. Um, and a lot of the work now becomes how do we externalize it without needing to change um, or needing to control our relationship with food. I don't know. Does that answer your question, Ben? <laughs> I think it actually does because the way I understood it, at least, is because we all, and I'm pretty sure I speak for every human being on the planet, that we all experience shame and guilt at some point in our lives. And those are such uncomfortable feelings. And we don't often know how to cope with those properly. And so we seek control through something that we can physically like manipulate, which is oftentimes either when, you know, self-harm comes into play, but also food and the way we dress and the way we intake food and the purging. I, the way I've always understood it was kind of like how you said it, that we don't like something about ourselves, but we don't know how to address it. So we, go with the food because at least that's something, okay, well, I can do something about this. Even though it's it's not actually that close to the root trauma of those negative thoughts and, and everything like that, but because it's something that is there and then that the client has the ability to gain a sense of control over in their internal world, it, it really does make a lot of sense. And I, that's kind of what I've noticed with a lot of my clients. And it does go back, I think, with a trauma aspect, um, especially for clients that have experienced adverse childhood experiences, um, abuse and other traumatic events, whether it's, you know, um, physical abuse or witnessing domestic violence or witnessing a traumatic event, like a car crash or anything the the way that that trauma impacts people's lives you know it it does impact the way that they see the world around them but because those thoughts are so uncomfortable and so powerful but they don't know how to handle them 
they turn to something that they do have control over. And as children, because that is when most eating disorders develop, is as teenagers and whatnot, that's the only thing we have control over in our lives, really. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I did not have control over anything else <laughs> other than... No. And, and even then, like, yeah, okay, my parents would give me food, but it was up to me to decide how I was going to eat it. I could nibble at it or I could scarf the whole thing down. And so I think it the way that you described that, yes, they're so separate, but these clients are struggling with these internal forces. And so they turn to something that they can physically have some kind of control over. Yeah. As with addiction in general. I was just about to say that I was waiting. I was like, it's like the definition of addiction. Yeah, it, like, it really like is. That's what it, addiction is. As with addiction, yeah, it's it's a coping mechanism to those feelings of inadequacy, um, dot, 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 whatever else that might feel like. It's, so, a, it's an escape. Yeah. There's, there's um, you know, substance abuse, misuse. There's alcohol. There's disordered eating all of that falls under again that that uncomfortability or that discomfort to um healthily cope with those feelings and how it might change the way that we think about ourselves and so and it's i think that this is the first time that i've been able to link the two together and then for for two people to hear it in that way so thank you um for for offering that feedback then because that that's exactly what it is oh goodness so that also i think leads into you said there's different types you know i i actually i don't want to put you on the spot uh i had just learned about arfid i don't remember what the actual like <laughs> acronym, <laughs> acronym means do you know anything no. about ARFID or no? So I am not familiar I, I can with actually that. speak to that a little Great. bit. Um, yeah. I, I did have a client that had that. So ARFID is Restrictive or Reactive Food Intake Disorder. Um, and it is, to explain it in, a, in the terms that follow with what Stephanie has been using, the, the client will find, so for a lot of clients that experience ARFID, it's, again, the sense of control so they're trying to gain control, but on a case-by-case -case basis. So some clients mm -hmm. will eat, be fine eating some foods, but then other foods are not okay. And it is uh, highly linked to trauma um, because it could be like, oh, this kind of food, if I eat this, then my parental figure will say this about me. And so, okay, I'm going to avoid that. Or this kind of food makes me feel a certain way and I don't like that feeling of the food. So I'm going to restrict that food. The problem that arises with ARFID is that oftentimes the foods that the clients will be okay eating are maybe not the, uh, the healthiest, healthiest. <laughs> um, because they're seeking comfort uh, from those uncomfortable feelings. Um, that is the way I understand it. Granted, only from one client's uh, experience. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. there could be so much more to it. Um, and as Stephanie said at the beginning, <laughs> disordered eating, as spectrum, it's very complex. Yeah. And there yeah. are oftentimes some overlaps between the various different types. Yeah. Quote unquote, for those listeners who can't yeah. see me, air quotes, <laughs> different types of eating disorders, disordered eating, because 
the way that a client's going to approach it is going to be different each time. But from my understanding, our fave is more, it's more about the restricting of, of certain foods to a quote unquote detrimental degree. So, whereas, you know, purging, you know, they'll purge whatever's in them and binging, they'll eat everything. Our fit is kind of like, okay, well, I'm not going to eat this, but I will eat this and I'll purge this, but I won't purge when I do this. And it's a, it's kind of like an amalgamation. If you really think about it of all the different ways that people try to gain control over their eating. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the thing that comes to mind for me, as you say that I, I haven't heard it being referred to as ARFID yet, but what I've experienced um, with clients is like that avoidant or restrictive eating. Um, and that's the word, like, is ARFID in the DSM? I'm not too sure. I'll have to check now. Uh, I think it is it's in the DSM-5 now. Yeah. So yeah. It, it wasn't in the four. Uh, but yeah. It is it's in a the new five. one. And okay. that's why, that's why yeah. I asked. It's a newer diagnosis. So yeah. I was like, and from what I understand too, it can be a sensory thing. So um, people with like uh, sensory issues, mm -hmm. whether, whether it be autistic or neurodiverse or whatever, um, the the actual texture of the food itself uh, will help them be comfortable with the food or, or not comfortable with yeah. the food. That's the way that my client explained it to me was um, the textures of the food or sometimes it's not, I, I'm not going to say it is like synesthesia, which is the mixing of senses. Uh, for those clients, synesthesia is like, okay, I hear colors or, or something like that. It's not quite like that. But the way that it's been explained to me is the texture of this food evokes a certain emotion or a certain feeling. And it's a physiological response. Like my clients, the way that they explained it to me was, if that food is on my tongue, I physically cannot deal. Like the whole body will react. Um, and so uh, I think it is, I mean, I would imagine that there is some correlation to clients who are neurodiverse, who have sensory uh, stimulation issues, uh, who might be on the autism spectrum. Um, that was our most previous episode. If anyone did not listen to that, please check it out. Uh, check it out. You know. Unshamed plug then and for our last episode. <laughs> I I love this conversation so much because I'm thinking about uh, you know people who are curious or uh, and listening and tuning in and and they're hearing us talk right and they're like oh no I have an aversion to certain textures does that mean that I have this thing right and I I have to say is it I mean ask yourselves like is it debilitating and is it causing such big amounts of distress that um you know you can't follow through with eating it because we all have some aversions to some food yes right oh, <laughs> that's yeah. a good point yeah and, and could i, I have it? an aversion to olives i really <laughs> i'm okay with olive oil but if it's a full olive doesn't matter if it's a kalamata yeah. olive or it's a green black whatever i will spit it up yeah <laughs> we all have our preferences of, of certain yeah. things and we're allowed to have our certain preferences of things but if we're starting to to see that we are wanting to prefer something but our bodies are just rejecting it that that's kind of like a little key there for us to maybe question who is this something that i should look into 
with a professional, with a nutritionist, with a, with a therapist, whoever that might be, right? So I wanted to say that because I, I know many people who all of a sudden start just self-diagnosing themselves because they hear something and it's important to, yeah. to ask themselves that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that's, that's one of the DSM, like you have to have, it has to be getting in the way of everyday life, right? Yeah. Um, or causing, maybe causing health issues because you're not getting fruits and vegetables or, you know, whatever, right? Um, but it has to, one of the, you know, things you have to meet in the DSM for any type of, of um, diagnosis is it's getting in the way of everyday life in some way, shape or form. Um, so I think that's a, that's definitely a really important thing to point out, you know, uh, at the same time, you know, kind of putting this out there to say, Hey, look, this is a thing that people suffer with as well. You know, go check it out, go talk to somebody, talk to a doctor, you know, and things like that. We're finding out more and more, you know, as we go along about how people, um, eat and how different, um, you know, diagnoses interact with each other with trauma with, you know, all this stuff. It's such a, a fast moving, a fast pace uh, type of thing that, you know, staying up to date uh, can be <laughs> really hard sometimes after like 12 years. I'm like, yeah. I know there's this thing. Okay, there's a new thing. Oh, wait a minute. I do that thing already. I just didn't have a name for it. Oh, okay. Now we've got a name for it. So yeah, no, it's it's really really good to to point that out. So I guess the um, the other thing I wanted to you know kind of ask um, and kind of move towards is like treatment, right? We talked about a lot, you know, about you know, okay, we identify it. It has to do with trauma. It has to do with a lot of other things as well. You know, what is the you know gold standard type of thing? Um, what do you start with? Mm -hmm. You know, when when you find out that this is something that they're dealing with. Yeah, if I'm lucky enough to get a referral from um, a general practitioner, right? So they're already recognizing that there's something, um, there's there's some flags there that are coming up with their patient, and they refer them to me then I get the opportunity to work with um, a nutritionist, for example. And that, that collaborative, integrative approach of this client will come to me, will work on the psychological things that might be coming up with them. And then I work hand in hand with their nutri nutritionist and then their doctor. That, that's really the ideal um, way of, of treating a, a client who is experiencing disordered eating as well as family therapy. That's the biggest component that I will say will serve um, a client when it comes to disordered eating, especially if that client is younger, um, you know, to have the support of parents, to psychoeducate parents in the things that they might be introducing to their child. Um, and so I think of it as just like a huge team of people outside of the room that will help support um, that healing process. Now, if we move into adulthood, right, and clients who aren't living at home with their parents any longer, but their feelings and their bodies and their thoughts and, and their mind are still tied to that, then DBT is very helpful um, and EMDR with, with any client who I have worked with that has had this, has experienced rather disordered eating. EMDR right away is something that I um, 
opened the doorway to because again, it taps into those negative cognitions, those negative thoughts that they have that are tied to um, what they might be feeling in their bodies. Um, mindfulness, in addition to that, will will come into play. How do we start to slow things down? How do we start to be okay with the feelings that we might be feeling in our bodies so that we don't seek out a substance, we don't seek out food as a way to cope with them? And that takes a really long time, right? So we're teaching clients how to be patient with themselves because nobody else taught them that when they were growing up. And now if we go into the, 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 again, it's a spectrum, if it's so severe that it requires medication to help support the anxiety or the depression that might come as, um, you know, the comorbid symptoms to disordered eating, then that's something that I would refer them out to. But there's so many different, right? Like what is the right or wrong uh, treatment for disordered eating? It depends on where they're at in the spectrum. And and based off of my own experience with clients, that's that's what I can offer right now. Um, and I guess we can go into, you know, we can deep deep dive into all of the things that I've, I've shared with you so far, but just as an, an overall um, summary of what I've used, it's, it's all of those. Can, can you speak a little bit more to, to mindful eating? Uh, that That's something I went to a panel uh, oh. at a con and there was a <laughs> mindful eating uh, panel and uh, uh, it was very exciting to listen to. Uh, so what what does that look like? You know, um, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Mindful eating and how I speak about it and how, how we work through it together with clients is um, before you engage in the act of eating, what are you thinking about and how is your body feeling, right? So if I'm thinking negative thoughts and if I'm feeling any sort of discomfort, and my immediate reaction to those negative thoughts or to that discomfort is to eat something. How do we slow our, how do we just, whether that's with tapping, whether that's with deep breathing, whether that's timing your, yourself using a timer on our phone, because we all have a phone now, and, and regulating ourselves, regulating our bodies rather, so that we're not feeling any of those feelings of discomfort before we're eating then we create space between how we think about ourselves and how we're eating because of how we're thinking about ourselves. So mindful eating really has to do with just the consciousness that we have um, before we engage in the act of it. I don't know how other you know, clinicians define that, um, but that's typically how I, I slowed down that process for my clients is tell me a phrase. What typically comes to mind for you before you eat? And let's, let's hold on to that phrase. Let's come up with positive affirmations or, or the opposite of that phrase to start to talk to ourselves in before we engage in, in nurturing ourselves with food. Yeah, so it, it, it's that. Um, and again, it looks so different across, you know, different clients, but that's usually how I, I introduce it. Cause a lot of the time we're going to eat because we're needing to cope with something that we're not happy about. And how, how often is this person 
mindfully cutting their food, right? And smelling the aromas of their food and plating it so that it looks beautiful and then looking at their food, putting the spoon into the food and, and just saying, wow, this is, this is going to nurture my body. I'm excited to eat this. I'm excited to love myself by, by eating this type of food. I'm still working on that myself. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. Rarely do we ever do that. I mean, and it's really interesting because, you know, everyone can identify, oh, this is my comfort food. But how does that comfort look like when you are eating that food? Is it just that you feel comfortable because you're full from the food? Or is it the flavors of the food? Is it the memories that are associated with the food? It's how you approach the food that turns it into comfort food, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's really uh, interesting that you brought up mindful eating because um, really mindfulness can be applied to trauma also. How are we interacting with our emotions and our body? And so it kind of makes sense that that would follow into the eating behaviors as well. So I thought that that was a really great uh, connection there. Um, it also goes to the other end, right? We were talking about restricting before and how do we create a safe space for that client to welcome more food into their bodies, right? And again, it's, well, then how do we start to teach that client first to embrace the discomfort of those feelings in their body without food first so that they don't um, push food away as a reason for, for them to not have to feel that feeling any longer. So uh, it's just such a, a huge spectrum. And I, I wish I had more insight, right? Like tangible insight to this is what this spectrum looks like. But as with like mental health, it's, it's so hard to pinpoint exactly what those thoughts are going to be because we've all had different experiences. And so to treat, um, you know, disordered eating in the room, we have to look at the bio, psycho, social, cultural components before we can even dive into to seeing what's going to be the most impactful. It depends. My yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that is the uh, that's the catchphrase of this uh, show. It depends. <laughs> it depends, which is why you have to seek out professional help, you know, so that that professor professional can work with you one on one to say, OK, this is what I think, you know, uh, is going to to work, you know, um, and obviously you both get input on that and you work together to figure that out. You know, and I, I, the other thing too, I wanted to kind of just touch on briefly was like, you know, it sounds like you're doing a lot of outpatient work, you know, um, you know, people go home, they come back. Um, but in some cases, like disordered eating is an emergency, right? Have you seen many of those cases? Have you referred out, you know, uh, what does that kind of look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, rarely have I experienced somebody who, who's had disordered eating to the extent where, you know, they've had to be hospitalized. Um, and again, it's constant assessment. Um, I know that I ha I've only had one, just one, where the restrictive eating was so severe that they, I had to refer them out to um, an, 
how do I want to say this? I had to refer them out to an intensive program to monitor what it is that they're putting into their bodies um, and what time they're, you know, putting food into their bodies are and to have that family ensure that they're, you know, following all of the different criteria or rules for ensuring, you know, she completes the program in that way. But usually, you know, the clients that I've had so far, they've, they're on the other side of it where they already can recognize like, okay, I, I want something to be different and I'm willing to try something. Um, and that's, that's where I find most success with my clients in is that, you know, they're in that phase of, of their lives where they have recognized that they engaged in it and they no longer want to. Um, that's where that collaborative approach happens. But if it's something outside of that, if it's something where, again, if medication is needed or if I need to refer out because they're still in those, those um, early stages, yeah, I will. I will refer out. And uh, for those of our listeners who have followed us from the beginning, we had an episode where we talked about different levels of care. And so I think this kind of applies here. Is it depends on the severity of the disordered eating behaviors uh, or mm -hmm. whatever condition we're really treating um, to determine which setting is going to be the most appropriate to get them the best help that they need. And, I, and from my own personal and professional experience, uh, having worked in both inpatient and also residential, um, now into outpatient, if a client is needing to be seen in an inpatient setting or even a residential, it's because the more, I would say, the medical side of things, the, the nutritional mm -hmm. side of things is going to have to take a little bit more precedence than the psychological because of the, you know, stage, stage that they're yeah. in and that yeah. if they're continuing with that kind of behavior, it creates a lot of medical risk. Um, I've had a client, granted, they were they had some other comorbid issues, but they needed to be seen inpatient because they had basically purged so much that they were not able to like even ha they had no energy to even like walk. Uh, they could walk, but very slowly um, they would pass out a couple times. It was very serious, and so that required medical monitoring you know the the nurses need to be watching them all the time in a residential setting where they're doing a little bit better they don't need nurses 24 7 but they do kind of need some monitoring in a safer environment and so depending on where the client is in their uh experiences of the disordered eating would help the clinician whether it be stephanie or myself or Charlene or any clinician to kind of determine, okay, am I the most appropriate place to treat you? Maybe right now you need a little bit higher level of care, but then you can come back to me. And I think that's a really important thing for people to recognize is yeah. if you do need to go to a residential or an intensive program, whatever, it's not a bad thing. And it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that you can never see the outpatient therapist. It just means that at this stage, these are the needs that need to be met more closely watched than everything. Yeah. And then we can go and really delve into it. Cause as Stephanie said, the clients that she's seeing are 
on the other end of it. They have the more understanding of it. And there's a, a joke that all therapists know, I'm sure, is how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? I love that. Just, You've told me that one. joke. <laughs> yes, but just one, but the, th but the light bulb has to want to change and that requires insight. <laughs> yes. And I know we've talked about insight on this show a lot. So the clients need to be at that point where they're recognizing that it's not just the physiological medical side, but there's also something more to it. Mm -hmm. Once they come to that realization, recognition, words, mm -hmm. uh, then they can really engage with Stephanie or any other outpatient therapist. And I will say, you know, if there are clients who are in intensive outpatient treatment, right, they're just beginning to start there, they could be paired with an individual therapist on top of that. Now, the yeah. work of the individual therapist is going to look different from the work that I'm talking about, because they're starting off in the very, very beginning stages of just like that motivational interviewing and trying to see where that client is at um, in understanding how much of a hold disordered eating has on them, um, which, which I rarely get a chance to do, right? Um, you know, motivational interviewing, there's all of these different phases stages i love it it's so good it's yeah, so good i, I love explaining it yeah and like you know um where i am in my work with clients is that's the very end of it they've they've already like you know they've already recognized that i have this is a problem and i don't want it to be a problem anymore so that's where my experience is for the very beginning stages you know clients are like this isn't a problem this is not this is this is how it's supposed to be and in in them depending on how much of a hold they truly believe that problem is like whether that's big or small we, we got to start there first and that's that's a huge hurdle i mean that's why iop is is impactful in that way um and just as ben said seeking out support professional support and seeing where do i fall in that um, hierarchy of, of treatment is important definitely um yeah and i um i was gonna say something i can't remember what it was hmm. uh that happens all the time well so i'm glad we kind of covered that because i knew people too you know just as a an fyi too because it's a spectrum because it's you know you're not going to walk into a therapist's office and they're just be like oh disordered eating okay you have to go to the hospital like it's literally you sit down, you have a conversation, you figure out where you are, what your needs are, and how we best meet them, right? Oh, the other thing I was going to say, trauma. I imagine that, and, and I don't know if this is your experience. This is, again, this is just a question that I came up with in my head. I would imagine that the severity of you know, maybe the disordered eating also kind of goes along with maybe the severity of trauma or how recent it has been or whether it's complex trauma, you know, those type of things. Um, have you kind of seen that um, in your, your work? 100%. Yes. Oh my gosh. Not totally off. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't not think about addiction when we speak about the impact of how severe or not severe the trauma is. And you mentioned complex trauma, that alone, right? If we experience different kinds of traumas across the lifespan, then our inability or ability to cope with those 
big T traumas or small T traumas dip, will depend on what's available to us. So um, through an addiction lens, it's I've experienced so much trauma throughout the lifespan that alcohol or drugs or this thing that disordered eating provides me with, it's, it's going to be more one big T trauma and then the rest of your lifespan, you don't experience something, it could still be that same amount. So depending on what that looks like, um, yeah, you can put them all in the same category then. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and for those listeners, you know, uh, who didn't catch the previous episode on PTSD and trauma, we talked about complex trauma there, so please check that out. But then also we will have a future episode about addiction to kind of go a little bit deeper into this because this is just touching the surface here. Um, and I really hope that our listeners are taking away that it, these things are connected that because humans are complex beings and our minds are so complex and the way that they respond to various different traumas big t or little t and so i i i want to make sure that our listeners understand that if you are experiencing disordered eating uh it's not a fault of yours and it's not a um a thing that says something bad about you it's not like a negative statement about you uh it is a sign as stephanie said that maybe your body is not handling a certain trauma very well or other factor in your life very well. And and that just means that, okay, we can work on that. Um, I really want to emphasize that, that no disorder, whether it's eating or otherwise, means that you as a person are inherently bad. Um, and especially with disordered eating, because it can affect people not just psychologically, but physically and medically as well. Um, and there's a lot of stigma um, on this in a very different way than other mental health conditions uh, because societal expectations of beauty and physical health, A, they change over time. I mean, if you look at stuff from like Victorian ages or whatever, that's very different than now. But because those things are so pervasive, the stigma attached to eating behaviors and disordered eating often tends to be so much stronger. So I really appreciate that Stephanie was able to kind of bring to us that this is a sign that there's something else going on, that you're experiencing more than just this. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you fail as a human being. It just means that, okay, some stuff happened and now let's, figure out what it was and how it has impacted us. And then we can grow and we can learn and we can be the kind of person that we want to be. We can have a kind of relationship with food that we want to have um, because food can be both, you know, good and bad, but it's really, how do we respond to it? How do we re relate to it? So I really think that that um, is a very great thing that Stephanie brought on that relationship between trauma and disordered eating. And I think that's a pretty good place to end this episode. <laughs> it's very good summary, Benjamin. Thank you. <laughs> Unless there was anything else, Stephanie, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? 
No, thank you, Ben, for for hearing me in the way that I would have hoped um, my message or my thoughts were to to be heard. Yay! All right, ending on good feelings. How can we not, you know? <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, Stephanie, we really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, we also appreciate the support from our listeners because that's why we're doing this, right? Um, if you enjoy our content, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're using uh, so that others can find this amazing content and information and we want to share it with the world and reduce stigma and do all the things, right? So <laughs> we're going to take over the world with good feelings and education. Exactly. Um, we're also here to answer your questions um, about mental health. So if you as a person have a question, um, reach out to us um, and let us know so that we can answer it on the podcast. We're not necessarily going to identify you in any way, shape or form, but we would love to hear what you all want us to cover. Um, and so if you'd like to reach, a, uh, reach us, you can email us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Um, you can also um, message us on Twitter and Facebook at Mental Health Quest, capital P podcast <laughs> on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and then, of course, if you want to uh, get us individually, we each have our own little um, spot for ourselves on the Internet. Uh, Benjamin, where can we find you? Uh, my other podcast that I'm uh, starting to build up, it is called My Hero Therapy. And it is a podcast where we do a little deep dive into the psychology of the My Hero Academia anime and learn how to be heroes in real life. Uh, two episodes are out so far. Third episode is being edited as we speak. Uh, so hopefully that will come out soon. But you can reach me there on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at my hero therapy and you can also email me there at my hero therapy podcast at gmail.com and stephanie where can we find you you can find me um at stephaniesarmanto.com it has all of the things therapy all things um mind body health related um i offer lots of holistic approaches there so that's just where my my home base is and um, my instagram handle for um, all things psychology related is at unfold with death. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to go follow that one. Um, so uh, as usual, you can find me, Charlene, at Nat20Therapy all over the place uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, Nat20Therapy.com. Um, and you can always email me at cmcpherson.lcswc at nat20therapy.com. So that's where we're all at. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm -hmm.